identity of His blessed sacred person. It is good to see each of you that are here today. and I'm thankful for the answers to prayer God's given since we were last with you. Uh, it's good to know that God is answering prayer still on behalf of His people. We can trust Him and look to Him with our needs. And He will be glorified as He answers those prayers. I'm grateful to be with you. I thank you for the kindness extended to me to come and be with you as has been over this year, uh, from March till then June, July, and last month. And uh, uh, you know they say fish stink after three days. <laughs> I don't want to have that happen, but uh, we appreciate the fact that you keep having us back. You're not getting a pig in a poke, and you still have me back. I appreciate that. I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Isaiah, please, in your Bibles. And I'd like to read in your hearing from chapter 45, and I want to particularly from that chapter, the 45th chapter of Isaiah, direct your attention to verses 20 and following. We'll be focusing especially on verses 20 through 22, but as we do, I'm going to read beyond that 22nd verse to the end of the chapter, verse 25, just to see a little bit more of the context of these words that Isaiah the prophet is speaking to God's people in a time when sadly they had become very wayward because of idolatry. And particularly in these chapters that surround chapter 45, we see God addressing the burden that He had for His people to turn from those things which could not profit to Him alone who can do our souls good. And that's evident even in these words here in chapter 45. So let's read beginning there at verse 20 again, and we'll read through verse 25 as I read this portion aloud. If you'd follow along silently and carefully in your copies of God's Word. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image. And pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else." We'll read on though. I want to stop there in our sermon, but we'll read through verse 25. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, in the Lord have our righteousness and strength. Even to Him shall men come. And all that are incensed against Him shall be ashamed. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. We trust our God will add His blessing, His stamp and seal to His written and read Word, His inspired and preserved Word. May we just pause before Him in prayer to ask His mercies. Father, we bow in that name that is above every name, that worthy name of the Lord Jesus, Father. And as we come... We ask Thee by Thy Spirit to do that which Thou alone canst do through Thy Word. Father, magnify Thy Son and glorify Him for He is worthy. We pray that each soul here today might by faith see Him through Thy written Word. And Father, that You would grant us 
as we see Him to realize His glory, to realize His beauty, His might, His majesty, our souls would be drawn after Him in a glorious and gracious way. Father, do for us, we pray now, in the worthy name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we look at these words this morning from Isaiah 45, I I want to give you by way of a title, Battle of the Gods. Battle of the Gods. But I'd also give you this, Charlie Spurgeon's text. Charlie Spurgeon's text. Some of you will recognize that. For, it was the words of Isaiah 45.22 that he heard when the Lord saved him. And God used that Scripture that he might look to the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation in his great need. But we also give you battle of the gods because in these words of Isaiah 45, but also in the really surrounding chapters... Uh, You can find it going back to the story of Hezekiah that's found in chapters 36 through 39, but in the successive chapters thereafter, God is, as it were, may I say it reverently, picking a fight with the gods of this world, for He's making it clear that they are no gods at all, and there is no God else beside Him, as He says here. Now that's a great claim to make, but it's one that we want to think about in the light of these words. And as we do, I trust the Spirit of God will grant us to see the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of our God. And as well, if we've not come to trust Him, we might trust Him and look to Him in faith. But if we've come to trust Him, that our hearts might be solidified even more strongly in the reality of how trustworthy and absolutely worthy of our faith, worthy of our loyalty, worthy of our lives He is. And so God would be pleased to work by His Spirit. So let's look together please at these words. And as we do in the words of verse 20 and into the first part of verse 21, I'd ask you to notice what I would present to you as an unusual challenge. Notice again the words, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together ye that are escaped to the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? Here in this unusual challenge, God, in effect, looks out at the world. Now it seems the time frame in the prophecy, not the time of the prophet, for Isaiah of Jerusalem lived around 700 B.C. He lived and was a prophet within the city that was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah where the kings of David's line ruled. And so he would have prophesied at that time, but in looking ahead, God gives him to see the coming days when Judah would be removed from its land and taken captive as a kingdom, the temple burnt, and the region destroyed by the Babylonians, and they'd be removed hundreds of miles away to Babylon. And against that backdrop, God, as it were, tells not only Judah, but all of the nations throughout the Middle East that had been impacted by Nebuchadnezzar's armies and by the captivity into which they'd been led. He tells those that are escaped to the nations, come and gather together. Assemble yourselves. Bring yourselves together. Those of you that are escaped to the nations. Now in doing that, 
He wants to throw out this unusual challenge. As He gathers them together, He wants them to realize that all of the gods in whom they trust are gods that are no gods at all. And so He says in regard to that, the last part of verse 20, they have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. Now, back in chapter 44, Isaiah had, by God's Spirit, made even a little more fun of that, if you will, a little more mockery. He talked about the man who would go out to the woods with his axe and he'd pick out, pick out a good tree. This looks like a good trunk right here. He'd fell that tree and he'd start, he'd set himself to making a God. While he was making that God though, he would get hungry. And so he'd take some of the same wood that he's using to make a God and he'd chop it up and build a fire so he could bake some food. And because he was getting a little bit of a chill, he'd warm himself by the wood of that fire that he was burning to cook his food on. And Isaiah says in effect, he didn't have enough sense to say, hey, I'm making this my God but I burnt some of it to bake a meal on, and I cooked, uh, I burnt some of it so that I could warm myself with it. And so, by that, God points out the foolishness of idolatry. And it really doesn't matter if it's gold or silver, doesn't matter if it's wood, stone, doesn't matter. Because all of it is like us created. All of it is like us made. No matter how valuable or invaluable it may be, all of it has been made by one who is God over all, transcendent and supreme above everything. And so, God lays out this challenge. And as He does that, I would remind you that when it comes to this matter, the battle of the gods as we call it, our God doesn't feel daunted or afraid to make this challenge. Because all throughout the Bible, we can read of how He met the gods of the nations and He showed themselves them to be no gods at all and showed Himself to be God alone. He did it in Egypt. When God, by His Spirit, sent Moses to go down to Egypt and said, Tell the Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may serve me. And Moses did that. And in Exodus, Pharaoh responds, Who is the Lord? And it's all capital letters there. It's Jehovah or Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, the I Am name. I am that I am. Who is He that I should obey Him? Well, he soon found out. Because God in blow after blow, plague after plague, showed that He's God. But as He did that, He began to unmask those Egyptian gods. You see, the Egyptians worshipped frogs. Guess what he did? He gave them a bait of them. <laughs> they were in, his, in the ovens. They were in the windows. And I can't, and, you know, and finally Pharaoh said, Enough! Ask him to take the gods away! And Moses said, Fine, when do you want him to do it? He said, Tomorrow. And once more, preacher preached the message. One more night with the frogs. <laughs> I wouldn't have said tomorrow if I'd have been Pharaoh. I'd have said, Right now! Not a minute more, please. But but Pharaoh said tomorrow. And they worshipped the Nile River. And what did God do? Turned it into blood. They worshipped Ra, the sun god. And what did God do? God darkened the land so dark and deep that it was a darkness that could be felt. And they would not move from their place for three days. 
They worshipped cows. And what did God do? God brought them urine, a, a pestilence and disease upon the cows. In other words, God said, I'm going to show you Pharaoh. I'm going to show you Egypt that I'm God alone. That all the gods that other men worship are really no gods. God's not afraid in this battle of the gods. You can skip over there from Egypt and Exodus to 1 Samuel and the children of Israel were fighting against the Philistines. Now we remember the Philistines from later in 1 Samuel when David went out and fought against Goliath. But earlier on, when Samuel was really young, a uh, boy, and Eli was the high priest, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, they were the uh, sons of the priest, but they were wicked men. God had sent a prophet and said, I'm going to take them out. They've sinned against me. And, and, and the children of Israel went out against the Philistines and they got beat badly. And they thought, well, we got beat because we didn't have the ark of God with us. That symbol of God's presence. And, and they, they brought that ark. And they, they weren't trusting God. They were treating it like, a, like I said earlier about the name of Jesus for some people, like a rabbit's foot. We, got, we didn't have our lucky rabbit's foot, you know. Y'all remember that Andy Griffith episode? <laughs> Barney thought that man was hexed. <laughs> he was going out to see him and he had to rub Opie's red hair, you know. Well, that's what they were doing. It's like they were rubbing Opie's red hair. Get that ark in here. We'll beat them for sure then. And when the ark came, the children of Israel shouted to heaven, raised a shout. So Lord, the Philistines said, what in the world's going on in the camp of the Israelites? They said, well, God's come among them. These are the same, same gods. They have a little bit of their information mixed up. The same gods who smoked the, the Egyptians in the wilderness. No, that was a different thing. They, that's alright, they were close. And they, they said, you better fight like men, Philistines, or you'll be slaves to the Israelites like they've been slaves to you. And they went out, and to put it in common country parlance, they laid a whooping on the Israelites. They flat cleaned their plate. And guess what happened? Hophni and Phinehas were slain. God had said it was going to happen. But also, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the symbol of His presence, was captured by the Philistines. And you might look at that and say, Oh, poor God, don't say that. Because you know what those Egyptians, those Philistines did? They took the Ark of the Lord that had been in His tabernacle, His holy tent, and they put it in the temple of their god Dagon. And let me tell you something about our God. Any temple you put it in, He's going to make it His. And in the battle of the God, excuse me, there's going to be a bump in that before. <laughs> Any temple you put Him in, He's going to make His own. And that's what He did. When the priest of Dagon left that night and came back in the next morning, their God was on His face before the ark. And they did what you have to do with false religion. you got to prop your God back up. That's a shame, isn't it? Help God out. He's falling. <laughs> Help me, I'm falling and I can't get up. Y'all remember that? <laughs> they had to lift Dagon back up. And I remember a black preacher friend of mine from Greensboro, Michael King, he, he one time was talking about that episode in the Bible and he said, if Dagon could have talked, but you know the Bible talks about him, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, mouths have they, but what? They speak not. But if he could have talked with that mouth, he would have told those priests when they cut the lights out that night, said, boys, don't leave me in here alone with this Jehovah. You don't know what he does to me when you guys walk out. <laughs> They came in the next day and their idol god, Dagon, 
he was not only fallen, but he'd been cut to pieces. His hands and his head cut off. Why? God was making a statement. I'm God all by myself. You see, in the battle of the gods, he's not worried. Because when you're God alone, and there are no competitors, it doesn't matter. Those who think themselves God, or those who think wooden stone, or demons, or whatever it be, to be God, they're not God. God's God all by Himself. That's the God of the Bible. And you see, as God speaks, He's not afraid. That's why I can throw out this challenge. But but there, there's another episode real quick I've mentioned before. We go back to Isaiah 45, try to expound these words. 1 Kings 18. Read it this morning in one of my tracks of Bible reading. Y'all remember it, I'm sure. Maybe not by, by reference, but by content. That's when Elijah shows himself after about three years of no rain in Israel. And he tells Obadiah, the servant of the king, you go tell Ahab, I want to meet with him at Carmel. You tell him to bring his payroll prophets too. All those who are prophets. You tell him to come. And then they do that. And as they gather, Elijah is there and, and uh, all of those other prophets. And, and Elijah says to Israel as they gathered for the contest, the battle of the gods, Elijah says, if the Lord be God, serve Him. And if Baal be God, serve Him. And then he told those prophets of Baal, those priests, he said, you get you a, a, an animal. and You go ahead and you offer your animal. But as you offer him, it's the God who answers by fire that will be God. The people said, all right. Those men started, those, those prophets of Baal, they went to work. They cried out to Him. They called on Him. Said, I guess, their best prayers. They even cut themselves with lancets to let the blood flow. Some call it imitative magic. In other words, they said, we need rain to fall like our blood's falling. No, no answer. Noontime, they started about 9 o'clock. I guess Elijah got tired of three hours of foolishness. About noontime, he said, he said, why don't you, why don't you call out a little louder? He must be sleeping. Some even say that he said he says he's taking a journey. Some even say that means he's gone to the bathroom. He's gone to make a visit. Stay, speak a little. No show. Bell didn't show up. Elijah built the altar of the Lord. Twelve stones rebuilt it. Twelve stones. Twelve tribes of Israel. And he said, bring some water. And they they dug a trench around that altar. They fetched water, poured it out. Three times they did that. Poured that water out. And Elijah, he didn't cut himself. He didn't go into long prayers. He said, Lord, just show these people your God and show them I'm your prophet. And that's a little bit longer, but it's not much longer. And guess what? God answered by fire. Not only did He lick up the sacrifice, He licked up the stones and He licked up the water. All gone. Consumed by the power of God. Brothers and sisters, our God in the battle of the gods shows that He's God alone. And Isaiah, in effect, is calling the nations to bring their gods and set them up against His God. And if you'll notice in Isaiah 45, verse 21, as it says, God speaks of one way particularly that He has shown Himself to be God. It was referred to even by Brother Gary in his prayers. He talked about the prophecies of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, we find in the Bible. Notice verse 21 again. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient times? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? In other words, God says as He surveys history, 
God says, go back and look at what I said and see how it came to pass. Look at what I predicted. Look at what I prophesied from ancient times. And sure enough, it came to be. And I tell you, one of the greatest evidences of the truth of the Bible, there are many, but one of the greatest evidences is the fact that God has declared... Look with me at it in chapter 46 of Isaiah, please. Next chapter over, and listen to what God says to His people there. He says in verse 8 of Isaiah 46, Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all My pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. What God? What is God saying? We well, said, I'm the one who declares the end, what will be from the beginning. He's the one who is able to tell the future. Why? Because He is not the God of the present alone. He's the God of eternity. He's the God who knows everything. And then while that is something that you and I can't wrap our minds around, it's as though all of time is an eternal present to Him. And that's good news for the child of God, isn't it? There's nothing you face, child of God, but He's already been there. There's nothing, And God is able to declare then from the beginning. Even in here as He speaks there in those words of chapter 46 about that ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. That's a reference to Cyrus. He was the one who overthrew the Babylonian Empire. God calls him by name at the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45. Calls him by name. Now the critics of Scripture, they say, well, somebody wrote. It wasn't Isaiah. It wrote later. And that's what a lot of people try to do with the fulfilled prophecy of Scripture because they can't explain it. But if you know the God who is God over all, you have no problem believing it. He's able to declare it. He's able to say it. And we have that in the case of His Son. As Brother Gary mentioned in prayer, there at the time of the offering, uh, the Lord declared when His Son would come, Daniel chapter 9, where His Son would come, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. God declared the sufferings of His Son, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. God spoke of it. Isaiah 700 years before the cross spoke of the cross as vividly as though He was standing at the cross. How was that? Because the God of the Bible is the God who's God all by Himself and He declares the end from the beginning. And that's good news, child of God. He's the God who has His hand on everything. That's what the word Almighty means over there in Revelation 1.8 when it says He's the Pantocrator in Greek. He's got His hand on everything. I'm glad, aren't you? You know, R.C. Sproul tells about how back in uh, uh, one of the Indianapolis races that they had a crash on the, on the track. And, and of course they try to see why the, why they had a crash. Man was killed, I understand, driver. And as they were able to put the wreckage back together, they found out that a 10-cent cotter pin had broken in the wheel assembly. And as a result of that, the wheel had ultimately come apart from all that high speed. And as it broke apart, the car tumbled and the man died. And then Mr. Sproul makes this 
blessed application. He said there's no ten cent cotter pins in God's universe that's going to ruin his plan. No stray atoms out there, child of God, that are going to make his plan go away. He knows everything. He has his hand on everything. He's the God who declares the end from the beginning. And this becomes again one of those evidences among many of the truth of who he is. Fulfilled prophecy. Over and over again, He has been spoken, He's declared specifics. Not just general stuff. And you see, here's the difference between the Bible and a lot of these modern and more recent predictors. In the Bible, you don't get it even 99% right and live. In the Bible, you get it the whole way right or it's no good. And that knocks out a lot of Nostradamus and all of these others. Gene Dixon and these... Put them, put them aside. Why? Because their track record isn't the track record God says. God declares the end from the beginning. He's the one who says, I will show you what will be. And He has done so. And we can trust Him then implicitly. And that's what He says in this unusual challenge. But as we go back to Isaiah 45, please look with me and notice there at the end of verse 21, That unique claim that God can make because He's God alone. The unique claim He makes. He gives out that unusual challenge there through what we've read in the middle of verse 21. But then that last part of verse 21, He says, And there is no God else beside Me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside Me. Here God speaks as He speaks in His Godness, if you will. As He speaks in the glory of who He is, God says, there is no God else beside Me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside Me. Now those words, a just God and a Savior, they really get to the heart of what Isaiah so often is speaking of in his prophecies. You see, Isaiah's name in Hebrew means the salvation of Jehovah. And the name the Lord Jesus Christ in its extended form, Yahushua, means the same thing. The Lord is salvation, if you will. And then Isaiah speaks of the one, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, who is the God of salvation. And in being the God who saves... Here's the, here's the rub, if you will. Here's the kicker. He's the God who is a just God and a Savior. For you see, God cannot save sinners unless He is true to Himself. And in order to be true to Himself, that is to remain just, righteous, and holy, God had to make sure that while He forgives of the sin of the sinner, He also punishes the sin of the sinner. Now, how can that be? I mean, if I'm a sinner, and like the book of Job says, I drink up iniquity like water, and I can tell you I have. I can remember my young years. The Lord saved me this month of September. Back in 73, that's 47 years. I'm not good at math, but I know that much. He did it. But I can tell you, in my young years, age 14, I was drinking up iniquity like water. I love sin and I had great plans for more sin. But the Lord interrupted me on my mad rush to hell. He stopped me as I was going down to the pit. But He did it in such a way as to magnify His holiness and His righteousness. 
For he will not save sinners at the expense of his glory. You and I will be damned before he will change being who he is as a holy God. And that is why, brothers and sisters, we see the cross. That is why we have a cross. That's why we sing about the cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. That's why we sang the words of Brother Cooper this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I love that second stanza. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I Though vile is He, wash all my sin away. What's that talking about? Who is Emmanuel? Why, that's the name of Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14, the prophet predicted the virgin-born one. And what did He do? He is a man born among men, but born different from other men. Born by a virgin womb. No human seed passed to the womb of Mary when He was born. No seed at all. Rather, the Holy Spirit overshadowed and empowered so that the womb could conceive without human seed. And He was born of a virgin. And He lived perfectly among men. He lived a life that you and I have not lived. A life that was unstained by sin. He's the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners Savior. And in the perfection of His sinless humanity as God and man, He went to the cross and paid a debt He did not owe for us who owed a debt we could not pay. I owed a debt. I was going down to the pit. I was lost. I had nothing to pay that debt. I was unrighteous. I was full of sin. I had no good works. Christ, though at the cross, took my place. That's wondrous mercy, I tell you. That the darling Lamb of God, the darling Son of God, would take the place of a sinner like David Morris, like that dying thief, but that's what he did. And at the cross, he took the penalty that should have been ours, it would have taken us to hell forever. And we'd be under the wrath of God, licking up the fires of hell forever. And yet in his mercy, he took that penalty. And he drank that cup, and as he drank it, remember he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because he was being an abandoned one for us. Abandoned, forsaken, left, because in hell sinners would be told, Depart from me, I never knew you. But unlike us, because he was God and man, he could take that penalty. And he could pay it fully. You see, I'd be forever in hell under God's wrath paying that penalty because I can't suffer infinitely in a few minutes. Because he was God, he could. I have to suffer all eternity. But he could say, it is finished because he drank that cup dry at the cross. The cup of damnation. And in doing that, God was just, righteous, but also becomes, as Romans 3 says, the justifier of everyone who believes in Jesus. How can I be just before God? Because God has taken my sin debt and hell penalty, laid it on Christ, and Christ has given to me, by His grace, through faith, righteousness. 
And that's what God says in Isaiah 45. I'm a just God and a Savior. You see, we've read the Gospel so often. We, I think sometimes, brothers, if we would kind of forget some of what we've learned, not that we want to forget it forever, but when we read the Bible, read it fresh, I believe we read a statement like this, a just God and a Savior, we'd go, what? How's that? But we know it's so because of the cross. That's what Isaiah goes on in chapter 53 to talk about. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. That's what Christ did. And that's why God can make this unique claim. No other can make it. Philosophy can't make it. Religion can't make it. The, the leaders of the world's religions, Lao Tse, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Allah, uh, uh, Krishna, they can't make it. They don't look at sin. But our God looks seriously at sin and He says, I must judge it. But that's what He did at the cross for all who believe on Christ. He judged our sin in the person of His Son. And that's the glory of the Gospel. That's why He can say, I'm a just God and a Savior. But if you'll notice, against the background of that unique claim in verse 22, there's a universal call. Look at the words. Look unto Me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Listen to that call that God gives. It's universal. He says, look unto Me all the ends of the earth. When you think about that, you might not feel God's call came to you, but let me ask you this. Are you even on the ends of the earth? It still comes to you. It's a call that God makes and says, look unto Me. It's a command. Look unto Me. Now I gave you by way of a title, Charlie Spurgeon's text, as well as Battle of the Gods. The reason I do that is because, as I've said, Charles H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the, the preacher who preached in London from 19, 1855 excuse me, to 1892, I believe it was. He died in that year. But uh, Brother Spurgeon was converted by hearing this text preached. Let me share some of his conversion story, if I may. He tells of how he had been under deep conviction of sin for so long. And he'd go to hear preachers to try to get some help for his soul so they could point him to how to be saved. And he said he couldn't get any help. One would preach maybe about how to live the Christian life. He said, I need to know how to be a Christian, not how to live the Christian life. And he said he felt like he would continue like that for a long time had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. He was going to a certain place of worship, but the snow was so bad that he had to turn into a primitive Methodist chapel. He said he had heard about the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loud that they'd make people's heads ache. But he said he was determined if he could get help from God, he'd go there. Well, the snow was so bad, apparently the ministry was supposed to preach that day didn't show up. Another man got up to fill the pulpit and Mr. Spurgeon said he was not educated. He really was somewhat ignorant. He said he probably would have not listened to him, but when he read his text, Isaiah 45, 22, he thought, ah, there's a ray of hope for me there. Look unto me and be ye saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God. 
And he said, as that man started, he said, now, now look and don't take a great deal of pains. He said, you don't have to go to college to look. You don't have to be worth a million to look. He said, well, even a child can look. Ah, but he said, my text says this, look unto me. He said, there's the problem. He said, some of you are looking to yourselves. He said, some of you are looking to the Father. Some of you are looking to the Spirit. But he said, oh, the text says, look unto me. Look to Christ. He went on for a little while. Mr. Spurgeon said he'd spun out about ten minutes. And he'd gone about the end of his tether. Mr. Spurgeon said, then he looked at me, seated under the gallery. He said, young man, you look miserable. Mr. Spurgeon said, well, I did, but I wasn't accustomed to remarks being made from the pulpit about my appearance. But that man hollered out then, he said, you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death unless you obey my text. But if you look right now, you will be saved. And Mr. Spurgeon said, then and there the clouds rolled away. Then and there I saw what I'd been longing for those months. I saw that the way of salvation was by looking to Jesus Christ in faith. And he said, I looked till I could have looked my eyes away. (laughs) He said, it was such a delightful word, look. Brothers and sisters, really that's what it is. Salvation is is found in the difference of to whom are you looking. Are you looking to Christ? Are you, if you're looking to yourselves, there's no salvation there. If you're looking to Buddha, Bahula, any, no salvation there. Looking to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the Philippian jailer, and thou shalt be saved. It's looking to the one who at the cross, again, paid the debt he did not owe for us who owed a debt we could not pay. And today, if you've not looked to Him, I would want to say to you, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Him and in no other. That's why our God says this. And again, notice the universal character. Look unto Me all the ends of the earth. That So often the Word of God was addressed in the Old Testament primarily to Israel. But here's a case in Isaiah where it's addressed to all the nations. Why? Because the Gospel call is that wide. Extending to the ends of the earth. And one day in the presence of the Lamb, there will be those from every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, and people who will stand in His presence from the ends of the earth. Kenyans, Ugandans, Russians, Siberians, Mongolians, Chinese. Thank God, there will be at least one from Fayetteville, North Carolina. The Lord has saved. More than that, I'm convinced. Brothers and sisters, this is the call. And in its nature, it speaks to us of good news and of the pardon that God gives to sinners who look to His Son. Look and live, we sing. Look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. That's what God says here. Look unto Me and be ye saved. If, brothers and sisters, we've done that, let me add this note. Let's keep looking to Him. Don't take your eyes off Him. I heard a brother preach it this way one time. He said, I'm saved by my good looks. (laughs) Y'all think about that a moment. I'm saved by my good looks. Not talking about this. 
but my looks to Christ, you see. When I was saved as a young man, I looked to Christ. How am I being saved now as a believer in sanctified living? By looking to Christ. One day we shall see Him as He is, and we'll be glorified. How will that happen? Looking to Christ. We'll see Him as He is. And that, brothers and sisters, is really the key and secret of the Christian life. Keeping our eyes fixed on Him. Brother Machine put it this way, take one good look at yourself and 10,000 good looks at Christ. He also said this, I looked to Christ and the dove of peace flew in my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. You see, we look to Him. 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 It's Christ. 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 God grant that in our lives, Brother Kevin.